I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The best things happen after dark. Nightclubs are the ultimate space for self-expression, escape, music, socializing, and forgetting for a moment the outside world. They're a place to discover ourselves, find new friends, and fall in love. As humans, we like to dance to a beat and there's nothing like a good night out. I'm Jodie Harsh. I'm a DJ, producer and occasional club promoter. I know how to tear up a dance floor and for this podcast, I want to explore with my guests how club culture and going out has shaped their identities and informed their work. I've got us the guest list and cue jump sorted, so we'll delve right into the hazy memory banks and hit the floor. This is Life of the Party. How do you describe this episode's guest? His music has defined so many eras and it soundtracked so many people's lives. He sits at an incredible intersection of culture between popular music and the underground. He's helped shape the careers of superstars and gave them the songs we love. If you've ever been on a dance floor, you've definitely enjoyed this person's records. He makes music for the nightclub experience. From Madonna to Bowie, Diana Ross to Daft Punk, and of course his own band Chic, his body of work has shaken dance floors for decades. He survived cancer, drug and alcohol addiction, and a violent backlash against the musical genre he was the star of. He is to this day the king of the dance floor. Niall Rogers, this is your life of the party. Thank you, Jody. Good to be here. Awesome. So this podcast is all about coming together, being in a space with other people and dancing to the same beat. Now, your song, Good Times, is one of my personal anthems. I have the line, leave your cares behind, imprinted on my brain. But we found ourselves in very testing times. So while we can't experience it live, how important is music as a means to escape? How does it transport you? So... Uh, when I became a composer of pop music, when I officially transitioned, if you will, from jazz and classical to pop, the one thing that really governed my life was trying to compose music that made people feel good. That was, I, I would almost say that that was like a mission statement, a personal mission statement. It was easy to do music that was introspective and made me feel good. It was easy to write music about my own um, sorrows and trials and tribute. That that was easy. What was difficult was to write music that a person would hear and say, oh my God, that just feels so good. I want to hear it. And I always used to say this, they want to hear it again. That was the big thing for me when a person wanted to hear the song again I always felt like wow I've accomplished something magical because the person can hear something one time and go okay great now let me get to my favorite record but when somehow you occupy space in their mind that makes them move their favorite record move their favorite record to the side right and then say I want to hear this new song again that was the dream come true for me. And I've always lived by that sort of uh, wacky credo. Mm. I feel like a lot of your songs were really based around being in a nightclub space, literally. Um, in what ways has going to nightclubs inspired your songwriting? I know there's a, a story about Studio 54 and um, how Le Freak came about. Yeah, but Le Freak was, you know, just one thing. I mean, yeah, Le Freak... Uh, was actually uh, written because I didn't get into the nightclub, which was interesting. Uh, that was um, uh, New Year's Eve, uh, 77 going into 78. We were invited personally by Grace Jones. Uh, but when we got to the back door, the guy slammed the door in our faces and told us to F off. We said, oh, F off. So we went to my apartment and we wrote a song called Ah, 
F off, doom, 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 F Studio 54. But it sounded so hooky, we changed it to ah, freak out. And so by not getting what we wanted, we got more than we could have ever imagined. It's the biggest selling single in the history of Atlantic Records. Somewhere back there on my wall. Uh, but to this day, not, no song has ever outsold it at Atlantic. You know, and that's the label of, you know, Bruno Mars, Cream, Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles. You just go on and on. Led Zeppelin forever. Wow. So uh, club life for me symbolized something much more important than just the club. The club was this special place that disparate people gathered. And it was something that was so the antithesis of America, because America, no matter what people may like to believe, how rosy it is, they see you know television shows and go, oh my God, I want to be on Hawaii Five Over, I want to be on Miami Vice. The truth of the matter is that America is, is quite puritanical, and it's not the wonderful lovely, rosy, fabulous country that you would like to believe. Certain pockets are absolutely like that. New York City, of course, being one of those places. I was fortunate to be born in New York and experience club life in New York because that became the template for clubs all around the world. Studio 54, you know, places like that. Those type of big super clubs became what would dominate the world landscape so for me those clubs and the people in those clubs and the way that you were treated in those clubs and the mentality of the folks who frequented those clubs it ran the gamut so you could see famous politicians even presidents kings as well as guys like me who were just starting um, rubbing elbows with people as diverse as Michael Jackson or Liza Minnelli or Mick Jagger or Bianca Jagger or Arnold Schwarzenegger or just name it. So did it feel like everyone was treated equally once inside the club? You got it. You must have read my book because that's exactly what I said. Once you got past the velvet rope, you were cool. That was the thing. It was almost like Checkpoint Charlie. <laughs> like Once you got in, you were a citizen. And, um, and, and that was just a fact. People just assumed that if you were there, you belonged there. Therefore, if you struck up a conversation with anybody, a big superstar, they treated you with a certain type of, of curiosity and admiration and respect because they just felt like they were just not cool enough to know who you were. <laughs> and it was just fine. So, I mean, there are pictures with me in the early days hanging out with some of the most famous people in the world because I was quite shy but in the club atmosphere you really felt as if you could talk to anyone and I think that to a great extent that still exists when I go to places like Ibiza or as you guys call it Ibiza um, uh, when I go to places like that it, there's still that semi-hippie peace and love kind of thing people want to share people are altruistic as opposed to you know they they want they want you to feel as good as they do <laughs> as opposed to there being a big economic divide for example rich mixing with poor correct the the, the, the interesting thing about club life and club culture and club people is that you don't necessarily have to be the superstar to be able to pal around with David Guetta for the night. You know what I mean? It's like you could meet David and he, he's just charming and you have something interesting to say. And next thing you know, it's cool. I remember the first night I met Diplo. Now, of course, I was already not Rogers, but the first night I met Diplo, I just walked up you know, on, you know, right behind the decks behind him. And it was like, wow, we were friends all our lives. So that's, that's that magical thing uh, that, that club culture has. It's the place where it's almost like the UN of groove. <laughs> mm, I love that. I want to know more about those initial few years of um, Studio 54, like the golden years. It's obviously such a reference point for me, but it's so mythical. So what can you tell us about Studio? Oh, yes. Uh, Studio 54, um, from my point of view, 
felt like the safest place in the world. Now, please, let's put this in context. Um, this was during, you know, crazy drug taking. This also was the era where AIDS came about. Um, so, you know, I mean, it was the type of situation where one night you could see somebody who had been your friend for 10 years, two weeks later, you say, hey, where's Stanley? And they say, oh my God, he died last night. Where did he die from? He died of AIDS. Next thing I know, there was a huge, um, uh, I mean, just a, a huge mass of people, great friends of mine, employees, uh, people who did my clothing, my hair, all sorts of people that were just in the mix that were there one day and the next day they weren't. Uh, so AIDS was horrifying. Drugs were horrifying, but fun. <laughs> mm. And with AIDS, obviously it was such a dark time and people were losing friends. But did was that reflected in culture? Like, did art become darker in those days? I, I can't speak for the the movement itself or the the zeitgeist of the that era because i never talked about what was happening as much as i talked about what i wanted to happen what i wanted to see happen so my music was rooted in optimism uh, you know, of course, I would refer to the dark times that we were in. As a matter of fact, good times is a great example. Uh, it talked about the worst financial period uh, in America since the Great. As a matter of fact, we refer to the Great Depression, but we use double entendre to, you know, we, we use the song, Happy Days Are Here Again, the sky. You know, our first words out of our mouths are, Happy Days Are Here Again. But we flip it, you know, and the stars are going to twinkle and shine this evening about a quarter to nine. We say, let's get together about a quarter to ten. So we make these obvious references for the more intellectual set. But just for people on the dance floor wanting to experience a good, safe place, a good, safe environment and a happy groove and a happy vibe on the dance floor, uh, we could be reporters but we could also be philosophers. And that's what the music was about. And that's what the culture was about. And we were not unique. A lot of people were like that. Yeah. And the crowd at Studio 54 obviously wasn't exclusively queer, but you'd, you'd go everywhere, right, in those days. Like, did you find yourself going to gay clubs? Did people generally kind of hop around all different types of parties and cultures? Yeah, so it, it was... The, the disco era and, and even the early era of, era of uh, the, the club kids, the early 80s, uh, because it all spilled over into club kids and hip hop culture. Um, it was it was the most open period in music and socializing that I had ever seen, um, even though you may have certain um cliques and affinity groups and stuff like that, especially when hip hop came in and they started to have, you know, dance crews or even when uh, when voguing came in and, you know, people started to represent different houses and things like that. So it was it was a variation of gang culture, a variation of protecting turf. But it was like what I my definition when I was in the Black Panther Party and we used to talk about what's the difference between um, politics. What's the difference between politics and war? Politics is war without violence. <laughs> so we would, we would talk, we would have ideological struggle, you know, and, you know, and we, we would disagree, but we'd agree to disagree. And then at the end of the night, we're all friends. You know, we'd have different points of view, especially because if, you know, like my friends used to always call me terminally heterosexual, but boy, I like I like I grew up around like not only did my parents have tons of gay friends, but I was I'm from Greenwich Village. Jesus Christ, you can't have. I mean, come on, can't it, get it gayer. Was, I, 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 I and I could never understand why people would have a problem 
with a person's philosophy if it had nothing to do with your life. It would be like me being pissed off at somebody because they like pizza and I didn't eat pizza. It's like, well, I don't eat pizza, so why am I pissed off? Because you're eating it. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. So my life, I hate to say it, was very utopian. I had friends that is hard. I hate to say it. I, I, you know, I had friends that were hardcore, you know, mafia hitmen, murderers. Of course, I didn't know it at the time until you know, like five years later. I watched, you know, uh, television broadcast and go, "You mean the night that we were playing poker? He left the game and killed five people in Philadelphia." Um, <laughs> Surely not, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> and then he gave me his father's guitar and he was crying and said, no, I love you, man. You know, man, yeah. we were coke rapping, but in the midst of his coke rapping, he said, excuse me, guys, I have to make a quick run. Um, so, <laughs> so, you know, I just, it, there was, uh, man, I, 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 I love to feel that it was, it, it felt safe for everybody that you could, throw your politics to the side you could throw your your buddies from your neighborhood to the side and go into this place where we're all cool everybody is the same i would hang out at the most hardcore nightclubs that were you know with hell's angels and bikers guys they were my best friends in the club now they may not have been my best friends outside the club but in the club they were my boys same thing with the gay clubs. I mean, hard, hardcore, you know, like leather bars and things like that. But I'd walk in, hey, Niall, how you doing? Nobody was like upset. They would say like, oh man, he's like super straight. Let's kick him out. I mean, it was, it was you know, like people people made fun of me in a weird way, but it was all in, in you know, it was, it was all cool. Like, guy, yeah, like he's the straightest dude I ever met, man. You know, let's kick him out of the club. No, No one ever said that. I'm sure everyone must ask you about Studio 54, but where else were you um, going at the time? Uh, where was Zen on? It was all around the same time. So Studio 54 and Chic, we, my band and Studio 54 started within months, if not weeks, of each other. So we were really sort of connected at the hip. The thing is, is that people, the owners of Studio 54 certainly knew who we were. Uh, my girlfriend was really just in the scene at the time. She had just graduated from Fashion Institute of Technology. So her friends were people like Norma Kamali, Calvin Klein, Jane Barnes, people like that, all these hip new New York designers, uh, where I was her boyfriend when it was cool enough. <laughs> A lot of people didn't know that I was also the same guy from that band, Chick, who made that record that went, everybody, Dan, do-do-do-do, clap your hand. <laughs> which they were losing their shit to every night when that song came on. But um, but it's cool. I just hung around with her and I could go everywhere. Uh, but 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 the, the, I guess the thing that I'm really trying to say is that not only do I miss it because people really were super cool, but you also felt like as an artist you were really judged on the merit of your work. Like I was a nobody. No one knew my name at all. But boy, when everybody dance came on, that dance floor went wham and was packed. Mm, it was unified. Oh my God. It was incredible. I remember the first time I heard my music at a club and the DJ played my song. And this is the God's honest truth. He played my song at least seven times. And everybody danced eight or nine minutes long he just played it over and over and over again and then when he tried to play the song that was the number one record on the billboard chart at the time people started booing and then he had to play everybody dance like another four or five more times and then they find <laughs> amazing it was and and i mean think about this as an artist you're anonymous the people are weighing in on your music. They love it. And they're telling you, you have just touched their lives. You, a complete stranger, did something meaningful to their lives. You made them happy. You made them dance. You probably hooked them up with a lover that night. You got them drugs for free that night. Or you gave people, whatever. And, and 
and it was all because of a song that I sat in my bedroom and worked out and it made me feel happy and conversely it made them feel happy and I've been chasing that high ever since I've never had that well that's not true it's happened to me a few times but not like that that was I was a completely anonymous guy living rent-free at a DJ friend of mine's house so do you feel like that that night when the DJ was playing your track over and over again is that the night that changed your life was that like the pivotal moment for you uh there were many nights that changed my life uh i would say what was more life-changing than that was the night that inspired me to write that song uh i was a jazz snob and my girlfriend worked at a jazz nightclub she was a waitress at one of the really sort of popular underground jazz nightclubs and there was an unwritten rule amongst employees at different clubs that you can go to another person's club and get free drinks. We now know it's probably because the mob ran all the clubs. And, and you know, but at that time, we didn't know. So, um, so we went to this brand new disco and we walked in and it was almost like a pop-up disco because it didn't really have a name. It may have had a name, but it was certainly doesn't mean anything as far as disco history is concerned but it means something as far as Nile Rogers history is concerned because I walked in and they were playing this song called Love to Love You Baby by Donna Summer and it was amazing it went on forever and then after that they played another song that went on forever The Village People San Francisco it was unbelievable and then they followed it with Eddie Kendrick's Girl You Need a Change of Mind and I was just mesmerized I was like look at this there's gay people there's Latin people there's people from Chinatown because Greenwich Village is on the cusp of Chinatown Little Italy the hip part of Greenwich Village and the East Village because this club was on um, you know, 8th Street and Broadway. So it was not in the heart of Greenwich Village. It was really at the dividing line. It was already on the east side. So um, this, this was a big night for me to, to just watch this happen. And what was really great, man, I don't talk about this that much, but what was really great is that my girlfriend and I, who had just come from her jazz club, we started imitating the dances that people were doing and people didn't make fun of us. And that was amazing, man. People started coming over to us and showing us how to do the steps and we started doing the hustle. And by the time we left that club that night, we were experts in the hustle, the Latin hustle. The, I mean, we were like killing it. <laughs> Would you ever bring out music to the club that you just made in the studio that day and give it to the DJ to test out? All the time, all the time. It, in, the, in the very beginning, that was my life. In the beginning, because so many of my friends were DJs at clubs. And these are people that you now, I mean, if you know the whole New York underground scene, you may know these names, these people who became a part of the thing. Um, uh, you know, Danny Krivitz at Pyramid, um, my friend Robert Drake, who played at um, uh, the club that that broke us. Uh, what was that club called? Oh, my God. How can I forget? Night Owl, the Night Owl. Of course, we went to the loft. Of course, um, uh, uh, Crisco Disco. Of course, um, the, the Larry Levant. I mean, these are guys that we would go into the booth give them a white label, they play it and go, oh man, what's this? And we say, yeah, this is a groove we're working on. We don't have the thing worked out yet. It's just a groove and a chorus. And they would play the groove and the chorus. And they say, that's the version I want. And that when the record finally came out, they would also have these really long breakdowns. And that's the other thing people don't really talk about too much. Breakdown, man, was a part of dance culture. That's why every Chic record up until, I, I don't know when I stopped this formula, but go back and look at every one of my records. The 12-inch version of the record is on the album. David Bowie, Let's Dance, um, We Are Family, uh, I Want Your Love, Diana, all these records have the seven, eight, nine-minute version on the album because we believe 
that that was our gift to the record buying public. Let's give them the 12 inch right on the album because that's really the definitive version to us. We would make that 12 inch. We didn't need another DJ to go make it longer. We made it longer ourselves. That's how we wrote it. I heard a story about I'm Coming Out by Diana Ross. Um, you guys really helped to modernize her. So was that song a metaphor for that or was it actually crafted as a gay anthem? Um, no, it was crafted as a not a gay anthem, so to speak, but it was a song um, that was written so that we could, so that Diana inadvertently because at the time she didn't realize what we were doing and it's cool um uh, but but we realized uh, let me give you the backstory so when we did the diana ross album when we were commissioned to write that album we had just finished sister sledge and when we did sister sledge that was also an album that we were commissioned to write and we wrote it without having met Sister Sledge. So the day that they walked into the studio, their record was already finished. <laughs> All they had to do was sing the vocals and it was done. It's like, okay, spend two days of your life singing and you got a record. This felt um, disrespectful to them. We didn't know that Kathy Sledge was 16 years old and was a virgin and was very religious. But meanwhile, their first single was talking about her meeting a guy and having a one night stand. It was called He's the Greatest Dancer. And she goes, you know, the, the line that she was really offended uh, by was my creme de la creme, please take me home. It was like, oh, my God, take me home and, have you know, make love to me because you are the greatest dancer. You're a man. You had the kind of body that would shame Madonna's and a face that would make any man proud. Oh, what? Wow. He's the greatest dancer that I've ever seen. Um, so, uh because that caused a bit of a row between us, the sisters, and especially the mom, who was the manager, and they were very religious girls. Um, but we held our ground because we were part of the movement. You know, we were part of the club scene. We knew that if they sang a song like that, they would be the coolest girls in the world. Um, yeah, I'm saying this in a very humble way but i'm just saying that that's our perspective if we got a hit you guys are going to be cool and we didn't get a hit oh well so what um we didn't want to make that same mistake with diana ross so before we wrote one note of music we said to diana we would like to interview you and we want this album to be a documentary that this, if we were filmmakers, this would be a film about Diana Ross. If we were uh, journalists, this would be a magazine article about the life of Diana Ross. So we approached the album Diana, which is why it's called Diana, um, as a, an overview of the life of Diana Ross as seen by the Sheik organization, not seen by her, you, you don't make a documentary about yourself. Somebody else comes in and makes that story. So they see stuff that you may not see. You may not recognize it or you may not want to talk about it. So I happened to go to a club one night um, uh, called the Gilded Grape. There were two big trans clubs that were in close proximity to, a, uh, to each other. One was called the Gigi Barnum Room, which was a big club and was really over the top and you know like it was like circus acts and trapeze and you know like whoa and then the other club was called the gilded grape both with double g's so that's why i sort of sometimes get them confused but this was in fact the gilded grape which was just down the block from studio 54. so i walked into the gilded grape one night i was having a perfectly great time this is a normal gilded grape night until I went into the bathroom to relieve myself. As I was standing at the urinal, I noticed on either side, there were like three or four deep Diana Ross impersonators. And I was like, oh man, maybe, I mean, and, and look, uh, the story is just a wee bit foggy because 
I didn't care whether they were having Diana Ross impersonation night. I didn't care about that part because I'm now doing Diana Ross's new album, right? Yeah. So you got I'm the a, real one. I'm a journeyman, <laughs> right? I'm 20 something years old. I couldn't even like say, oh my God, I'm doing Diana Ross's album. Everybody would look at me and go, oh, please. Yeah. Yeah. You know Diana Ross, you know? <laughs> yeah. Here she's our goddess, and you're telling me like you're in control of her life? Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> So I ran outside. I called my partner who was in bed uh, asleep and he, he, he was really out of it. And I explained the situation to him. I said, dude, this is like a Fellini movie. I'm in the bathroom with like eight or nine Diana Rosses. And like, we, we got to do a song called I'm Coming Out. I said, please write this down because I'm going to stay up all night and get drunk. And by tomorrow, I'm going to forget this. But if you write it down and you remind me, it's going to go poo, right back to my, you know, right back to my memory. So I explained the situation to him and he didn't quite get it at first. And then I said, man, just think of it like this. It'll be just like James Brown going, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. When Diana Ross goes, I'm coming out. I yeah. want the world to know. Now, she didn't, she didn't take the song as she was gay she took the song as she was coming out to perform her show which is what we told her the song was about <laughs> you got it <laughs> hey folks i'm mark Marin from the wtf podcast and this episode is brought to you by kleenex ultra soft tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, and just that that visual of you surrounded by a load of Diana Ross drag queens as well is it was awesome, pretty spectacular. <laughs> you must have seen a lot of outrageous things in your day. That that was one of the most. <laughs> that was one of them. It, and, but you know what was really really interesting is that had I not been producing Diana Ross's album, that wouldn't have been that weird. That wouldn't have been. It would have just been like. You know, like I've been to a gazillion trans clubs and then you see all sorts of wonderful spectacles. And, you know, the, the person who may be in control of the entertainment that night may say, tonight is, you know, the fall of Pompeii night or tonight is, you know, Sunset Boulevard night or whatever. So there's all sorts of theatrical events going on that, that are just fun nights. So that could have just been a fun night. It just happened that I was doing Diana Ross's album. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess in those days as well, people, obviously without phones, people lived in the moment so much more. Right. Uh, in, the, in the context of nightlife. But, th but think about it. I mean, the music inside the club was far louder than any phone call you could have made, even if you had a cell phone. But this predated the cell phone. The first phones that I saw that were portable were these gigantic bricks and people who could afford them always walked around with them because they seemed really cool. But what, what uh, sort of happened around the same time were the car phones and we have these antennas, these external antennas on our cars so you can have a car phone. And that was cool. I mean, I was like, wow, you know, I'm on the phone. And that was without... Um, those wacky antennas that were like satcoms. This was a whole new thing. So I had to go outside and put a, a dime. That's how long ago this was. I put a dime instead of a quarter or fit whatever it costs now, uh, a dime in, in the phone and called my partner and said, yo, Bernard, you know, like 
explain the situation to him. So the club scene in those days was super magical. And I, and I'm not putting down the club scene now because as I'm older, um, I don't have the same type of, um, um, experience with, uh, uh, with, with, with younger people that I would have when I was a younger person, like just give you a stupid, stupid idea. So the other day I was watching, um, I don't know, one of the cool new series on Amazon or Netflix, whatever, because now that we're under quarantine, we have to binge watch stuff. Yeah, of course. And so I was watching this scene and it was a romantic scene and the guy was slapping the girl's butt a lot. Like that was the thing. And he was like, pow, pow, pow. And I kept thinking, wait a minute now, when I grew up, like, all women were feminists. If you slapped a girl's butt, she turned around and slapped your face. <laughs> like that was like the least romantic thing I could actually think of. Like I, I don't want anybody to slap my ass. So like, but that just shows you that that a whole cultural thing has happened, and maybe this was like incredibly sexy, not just to that particular person, but to the filmmaker and the film viewer that this was maybe a heightened level of sexual excitement. So I, I use that uh, as a metaphor for me thinking about what would be exciting to write about on the dance floor. So there's there would be a, a sort of chasm uh, that, that would exist between me and a young writer right now, and, and they'd have to explain it to me. They'd have to say, yo, no, no, no. When we talk about that, that shit is like crazy. And I go, really? And I, and I don't mind being stupid because I love to be educated. I love for a person to tell me, yeah, the reason why my girlfriend's got all those marks up and down her arm is because she took a razor blade and cut herself all the time when she was in the, you know, the rehab trying to kick drugs. And I go, wow, really? I thought that was just some cool tattoo. You mentioned quarantine and obviously... We're doing nightlife from behind a screen now. A lot of DJs are live streaming at home and it's a very different experience to what we were previously used to. What would 1979 Nile Rogers have to say if he knew that in 2020 would be watching DJs performing from a screen in their bedroom? Um, I wouldn't believe it. I would think that we were watching a science fiction movie as opposed to a science non-fiction movie because this is real life and this is actually really happening now and i know i participate in a lot of djs you know playing uh, the music um online like at, at night right before i go to sleep i usually check in with uh dj denice um and and you know and some other djs that i know from back in the day but you know, what it, What am I doing? I, I'm, that's a comfort factor. I'm going for a place that I already know is going to be playing music that speaks to my soul. So what's happened is that, and I, and I don't think everybody's like this. I'm just talking about me. That we want to go to a place where we feel comfortable right away. We don't want to go to a place that's challenging. If I'm going to uh, just relax and go to bed, I don't want to hear something that's going to make me wake up and go, damn, that's cool. What is that? Holy cow. Because that's what my brain will do. I'll, I'll stay up all night and I'll like then get out Shazam and go, what was that? What was that group? Who was that artist? No, I want to go to a place that there are people that are like myself. That, you know what I mean? There's an affinity group of people who are older that go, yo, man, I laced up my skates last night and I was around, you know, it's. I mean, I just bought a new pair of roller skates the other day. I can't believe yeah. it. I'm 68 years old. <laughs> I love bought a, that. Bought a new pair of roller skates because now my old ones are just a half a size too small and uncomfortable. And I skate the R&B soul way. You know, we don't use laces. We just put the skates on and skate. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it was weird because... Uh, I wanted to go back to that comfort spot. And I knew that as soon as I put on roller skates that I'd be like, I skate the same way that I skated when I was 18 years old. 
it's all that wobbly leg, you know, you know, spinning around and doing all the tricks. And I kept thinking to myself, damn, if I fall and, and break a, a, a limb now, what the hell is going to happen? But we're not gigging, so I have time to recover. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking as well a lot about nightclubs being closed through the pandemic and the impact that might have on a younger generation who are missing out on this part of growing up. I mean, so many of my formative experiences and discovering who I am was um, formed on the dance floor. There's so much value in nightlife. I'm sure you agree. I, I totally agree. But you also, once again, you have to understand that you were on a social arc that preceded when before you got to that club there were other people laying the groundwork for that club to become cool to you so when you walked into it they had already it was already set up to be a place that was inviting to you and loving yeah, to you a curated you, experience yeah you chose um, that spot because you sort of had a feeling that that's the spot you wanted to go to um, what's what I think is going to happen now is we're not going to know we're we're, we're not going to know and it's going to uh, evolve and develop around the people who frequent it and they're going to uh, turbocharge it with their energy and their vibe because it won't exist if it, just think about this if if we try to just if we just tried to recreate something like a Studio 54, um, just from memory or the people who were there, it's it's not really totally authentic. And I've done this a number of times. The reason why it's not totally authentic is because what we're doing, we're doing it legally. It was illegal right from the jump. So right away, <laughs> of course they they didn't have a liquor license, right? They never had a liquor license. No, er wasn't Studio Fifty Four a juice bar? Yeah, every single night they would apply for a wedding license to have a wedding party, and at that wedding you could have liquor. Yeah. So they were selling it illegal. <laughs> it was all sorts of stuff that was just so knowing that you were in this place that, in a strange way, was thumbing their nose to society and to the law, that in and of itself for people who had come from the beatnik culture, from the hippie culture, from, you know, black power movement, the gay movement, the women's rights movement, we were saying, yeah, man, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, or I'm coming, you know, it was like we were rebellious by nature. So you had to have a club that was rebellious by nature. It was, yeah, it was like a convergence of rebellion. You just stole my word that I use all the time. I always say that. The reason why those, and I actually have a lot more. You don't see them all, but it's all around. I, the reason why I have all these gold and platinum records and all that stuff is because of Convergence. I wrote those songs because they felt good to me and, and to my artists. But what happened is that something outside of us happened that made it feel good to other people too. And that's what I call convergence. These other forces that had nothing to do with us seem, some, somehow came together the same, way, the same way magnetism and atoms and things like that attract um, like, and, and like particles and unlike particles and would bring them together. And that's what happened. These things would start being brought together through gravity and other forces of nature. And the next thing you know, Boom, a million people loved your thing. Two million people, three million people, four, five, six million. Um, and in today's world, billions. So when, for example, the Disco Sucks movement came along, how did that affect you? Did that feel like a personal attack? I, I always feel odd answering questions like this because the truth is, is that the, my response to that was a triphasic reality. The first time I heard about Disco Sucks, I was on an airplane flying from London back to New York. And Bernarda and I were sat in first class reading a newspaper and going, Disco Sucks. That's funny. We, we actually thought it was a joke. We thought it was like, rest, you know, like wrestling or something. We thought it was like, like, you know, going to see, I don't know. We didn't know what it was. But we were laughing because we thought it was a joke. 
um, it only became real to us when we came home. So our first reaction was to laugh. Our second reaction was, you got to be kidding. Because disco was huge. It was making gazillions of dollars. Everybody loved it. It brought all these people together. Now you're telling us that disco is separating people? That scientifically makes no sense. What, what element did you pour into this formula that all of a sudden made these particles go, whoa, and separate? Because we know that grooves make people lose it and just run to the dance floor. Then we, got, then we started to see this real story develop about um, uh, a gentleman, Steve Dahl. And, uh, uh, I think his name was Steve Dahl. Certainly his, sur his surname was Dahl. Um, but, the but, radio presenter. That's yeah. The, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. When, you, when you look at it, um, if Mr. Dahl's um, future was different, Disco Sucks would have never happened. It just happened because he got fired. He was fired from a radio station that was changing their format. They were changing their format to disco because disco was dominating the airwaves. And they figured that he was too closely associated with the former format. So if they wanted to make a change, it had to be really like a complete whoosh, like a, they had to put a whole new face on everything Whereas they couldn't just change the music and still have the same talking head. That's all that happened. So it was a commercial, some weird commercial decision. Yeah. If he had been the disco DJ, he would have probably transformed like that. Next thing you know, he would have had a white suit with a, with a black shirt and been wearing polyester and been going, all right, here's the new Bee Gees cut yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And you had the last laugh decades later, still, still doing your thing. Not even decades later. I mean, come on. The very next year, uh, almost a year to the day. Um, so in 1979, Chic had two number one pop singles. We had Le Freak, which had resurfaced again. Um, and we had Good Times, which was brand spanking new. And after Good Times flew to number one it went to number one so fast that we didn't even have time to learn it the first time we played good times we um, we were just faking it <laughs> we didn't rehearse it because we couldn't believe that people would know it that fast um and we only had a limited time on stage because we were doing these big festivals that would have like you know eight or nine acts so um but a year to the day almost the exact year to the day um the number one record was Queens. Another one's bite the another one bites the dust, um, and Rapper's Delight, um, and a song by Von Mason called uh, uh, Bounce Rock Skate Roll. Um, all of these songs were derivative of Good Times, and and in the Clash at Radio Clash, dun 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 ba dun, boom boom boom. Boom, 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 boom. And then in excess had. <laughs> dun, dun. I mean, come on. Every song was going. Boom, boom, boom. Dun, dun, dun. I need you to not. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, like so many records. Um, it was just uh, a, a crazy phenomenon. So that when Chic was doing it, it was now disco and it sucked. But when other people were doing it, it was cool. Okay, I'm going to fire some quick fire questions at you. If you could jump into a time capsule and revisit a club from the past, what would it be? Um, I would have to say, uh, if I could jump into the past and visit a club, it would be, now this is going to sound completely wacky, it would be Studio 54 one particular night, um, this woman who I thought was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen, uh, she was actually part of a, a pretty popular celebrity couple at the time. And they were my good friends. And she was there by herself, which was uncommon because they were like the it couple. And I was leaving the club as she was coming in. And she stopped me and she pushed me against the wall. And she said, Niall, close your eyes. And I closed my eyes and she put a tab of acid in my mouth. And she says, you're mine tonight. 
And I, one, at first, I didn't know how to accept that because one, both she and her husband were my friends, but it was one of those kind of things that you, the, the, the night seemed like magic. I, like when I woke up the next day from this whole LSD, it may not even been LSD, it could have been MDM. It could, at that point, I couldn't even tell. But it was just some kind of thing. It was a one-time only event. It never happened again. She and I never talked about it. Um, but I almost would like to go back to document it so maybe I can say, okay, she slipped something in my mouth. <laughs> I need to pay attention to what happened because the next day I woke up. <laughs> and you trace not, your steps. Well, what the funny thing was is that we didn't even go to my apartment or her apartment. We went to this um, this Hasidic Jewish guy's house who was a diamond dealer. And this was the precursor to these guys selling big rocks to all the the hip-hop guys. So I don't even remember this guy's name. I don't even remember. I, like, I, it was just such a weird thing. And I would love to be able to document that story because it was such a peculiar night. And I was a guy who was pretty much in control, even if I was, you know, pretty high because I had been getting high since I was a kid. Uh, but I would love to go back and actually have almost be a reporter and can say this is what happened and why did i do that why did she i'd like to interview those two people or the three people i want to interview the hasidic guy and say dude why'd you let us come to your house did you think we were going to buy a couple of diamonds the next day or something one of those nights right it was weird it was <laughs> the weirdest night of my life and finally you're throwing a party who's on your dream guest list throw three names at me oh man Three names, Miles Davis, Nina Simone, and Jimi Hendrix. Oh, that's a crew. That is a crew. Who's the DJ? Um, I would say DJ would be Larry, Larry Levan. Well, but there, I like so many DJs. But Larry, you know, we would go into the booth and and like time would stop. And he would just say, man, you want me to play this? You want me to play that? Hey, I heard this new record last night. Let's check this out together. But there were a lot of DJs that were like that in New York. But Larry, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Niall Rogers, this is your life of the party. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I hope it made sense, man. I'm Absolutely. It's early in the morning here, you know. It's... It doesn't need to make sense. It's nightlife. <laughs> <laughs> This has been Life of the Party with me, Jody Harsh. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you haven't subscribed just yet, please do. There's a new episode every week. Right, see you at the next party. Bye.